Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for today. And um, we ask for your grace and for your help as we gather this morning in worship. We ask for you to give us insight and understanding into your will, the way you have fashioned and formed us in this world, and the way that you have called us to live in the world, specifically as we think about this last Sunday, this first module, as we think about um, Christians engaging culture and the, the whole issue of Christianity and culture. We ask for your grace and for your spirit and for your help. We pray for our students and our children that are uh, right now uh, in their classes and ask that you would form them deeply uh, through your word into a love for you, Jesus, and into a knowledge of your love for them. We pray that they would love your word and that uh, scripture would be for them a light to their path and that um, they would hide their word, your word in their hearts. Bless our time together. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're finishing our class today. This is a very much a survey. And the, the goal of the class has been just to introduce you all to a couple of different, three different models for how people have thought in recent years about how Christians can engage with our culture, which is we premised this on the idea that our, our culture is increasingly secularized, increasingly post-Christian, and in a lot of places increasingly antithetical to Christian living. And so, um, so the last couple of weeks we've looked at the first two models, and we're going to look at the third model, which is called the Two Kingdoms model today. I know this is going to be new information for a lot of you, which is why I'm going to try to explain it. And, uh, but first, let's do a quick review. So what are the two other models? Anybody remember one of them or both of them? Okay, so there's the transformationists, and then what was the one we looked at last week? Counterculturalists. Good. What do we remember about the transformationists? This is the last one coming from this story. They think they can change it. What's that, Kelly? They can change culture. Yeah, the transformationists believe in transforming culture. Yeah, so they're optimistic about the possibility for cultural change. Yeah, any other things about the transformationists that you remember? Well, some of them like Bush and Trump. <laughs> some of them really don't. They should repent and stay in their position. The yeah, they, they, well, irrespective of their political, so there's some that have kind of center-left politics, some that are the religious right, but they believe that Christians using their influence in various spheres, including the political one, is by and large a good thing, for sure. Yeah. What about the counterculturalists? That's who we looked at last week. And you remember any thoughts on them, things we remember? We talked about the Amish. Yeah. The Amish are kind of the extreme example of the counterculturalists. Yeah. So, what is a counterculturalist view of the state? They are not fans of the state. They hate the state. Remember, they they refer to the state as being the powers and principalities that Paul talks about. And so, their view is that the church. How does the church witness to the kingdom for, for a transformationalist? Does anybody, I mean, excuse me, for a counterculturalist? Inside the family. Yeah. Just by being the church, by living authentically, usually on the margins of society, serving the poor, serving the hungry. And um, it's in that that the church will manifest the kingdom. So it's not by engaging in art and politics and culture and all that stuff. In fact, they say, when you do that, What's happening? Anybody remember? Your the culture is actually influencing the 
That's right. The culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. It's like when your child is dating someone that you don't think is a good influence, and they say, I'm going to influence them. I'm going to witness. This is missionary dating. You're like, yeah, that doesn't ever work. It goes the opposite direction. So, yeah, good. So those are the first two models we've looked at, um, and this is very much a survey. Today we're looking at a third model, and it's called the two kingdoms model. And... I'm going to try my best to explain and define what this model is and then do what we've done the last couple of weeks, talk about some emphases that they have and then talk about some weaknesses that they have. So with each view, I've tried to lay out what I think are some emphases and maybe also some strengths as well as what I think are some weaknesses. Again, the goal here for us is not, you might be able to tell kind of where I lean, that's fine, but the goal is not to persuade you that any one view is the best view. The goal is to expose you to these ideas and Honestly, to kind of take the best from each view, each view has a, a, a piece of the biblical thread, the biblical narrative that I think can be helpful. And so I want to show that again today and also think about some of the weaknesses. So two kingdoms, that's what this model is called. I'm going to call it that. Not like the Y2K bug, remember that? But two kingdoms. And classically, the two kingdoms view of Christianity and culture is Lutheran. It's a Lutheran view. Martin Luther, in many ways, held this view, but it's been modified in the last maybe 50 years by a lot of Reformed theologians, particularly theologians who reside at Westminster Seminary, California. Not Philadelphia. That's the right one. That's the one I went to. Um, California. Uh, the bi- a big name that some of you might know that's associated with this view is a guy named Michael Horton, who is a great theologian. I'm reading a book of his right now on justification, justification that's excellent. Uh, Michael Horton, other guys that you probably haven't heard of that are two kingdoms guys. And this view is kind of, it's kind of up and coming in a lot of ways in kind of our particular little stream, our particular little niche of the Reformed Presbyterian world. So why do they call it two kingdoms? Okay, the name two kingdoms comes from their core teaching. And you've got to get this because everything they do and think about culture and Christianity is an implication of this core idea. Here's the core idea. That God rules all of the world, that God rules as the Lord of creation, but that he does so in two distinct ways or in two distinct modes. So they've got two big circles here, okay? Two kingdoms. The first kingdom they call the common kingdom. Bear with me as we get into the weeds a little bit here. They base this on Genesis chapter 9, which is where God makes a covenant with, anybody know? Noah. Noah. So Noah, God, what what does God do? He destroys the earth with this flood, right? And then Noah and his family are the only ones left, and God promises them something. Does anybody know what God promises Noah? I'm not going to kill you all, at least not by a flood. <laughs> I'll kill you in other ways next time. Um, so he promises never to destroy the earth again by a flood. And he puts a sign, kind of a sacramental seal of the promise he makes, called a rainbow, over the skies. And uh, says every time you see this sign, you'll know. So historically, theologians, and I think rightly, view this as a covenant for all of creation. God promises the world, Right? Not just Christians. He promises the world, hey, I'm going to preserve the world. I'm not going to destroy the world by a flood. Does that make sense? So two kingdoms people say that one of the ways God exercises his rule in the world is by establishing this common kingdom. And in this kingdom, every human being is a part. 
Everyone is a member of the kingdom. And very, very significantly, they say this kingdom is kind of ruled by common grace and general revelation. Okay? So theologians historically say there's two types of ways God makes himself known. There's general revelation and there's special revelation, right? General revelation is called general because it's for everyone. It's generally made known. How does God, or through what means does God reveal himself generally? Through the creation. So remember in Romans 1, Paul writes, although they knew God and everything that God's power and divinity were made plain to them through the things that have been made, right? So you can look at the world and see order and design and know things about God because he has revealed himself generally in the world. Another is the human conscience. So we would say, and the scriptures teach, that because God has made us all in his image, all of us, even if we're not Christians, have some inherent moral compass. We have some sense of right and wrong because we're image bearers. That's general revelation. So God rules over the world, the common kingdom, by general revelation. That is, everyone can kind of get things right about God and about us and about the world. And he rules through what's called common grace, a very similar idea to general revelation. Common grace is where Jesus says, God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, right? So the fact that God takes care of all of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not, is what we call common grace. And an implication of the idea of common grace is that a lot of people who aren't Christ followers can, quote, get things right. In spite of their own rejection of Jesus, they can still get things right because God gives a lot of common grace. That is, things are not as bad as they could be. Um, So this common kingdom is basically the idea that God rules over his world by giving people general revelation of himself, giving a a lot of common grace so that all humans have certain intuitions about God's standards of behavior, and all people have insight and wisdom uh, about how to function in the world so that the sin in the world is somewhat restrained. In other words, the world's not as bad as it could be. The world's not as bad as it could be in this common kingdom because of common grace, because of general revelation, because God has written the law on our hearts. Okay? So let me think. An example I think of common grace is Winston Churchill at the end of World War II, really all through World War II. Winston Churchill, not a Christian, but he's able to think Nazis, bad. You know, from the very beginning, Nazis bad, probably not good. They're, you know, shipping the Jews off to these mysterious locations and the Hitler's rhetoric, all that stuff. Churchill's on this from the beginning. Not a Christian, but at the same time exhibits incredible, biblical, true, and good qualities of leadership, etc. in World War II. Right? Does that make sense? All kinds of examples of common grace in the world. So I just always think of Churchill. And so what these two kingdoms people say is that Christians are a part of the common kingdom too. Everyone's a part of the common kingdom. And we should be willing to work alongside our non-Christian neighbors as co-citizens, sustained in life together by God's common grace. And we should not try to impose our special revelation biblical norms on people in the common world through coercion. 
That is through taking over the culture. Um, because that's not the point of the common kingdom. Okay, so let's, let's get to the second one. Oh, this will make it a little clearer. The second kingdom is what they call the redemptive kingdom. And you might imagine where they're going. The redemptive kingdom is uh, established not through the covenant with Noah, which was for everyone, but through God's covenant with Abraham, which we would say was the beginning, quote-unquote, of the church. And they would say only Christians are members of this kingdom. And they're ruled not through general revelation, but through... There you go. Through special revelation, which is God making himself known in a saving and special way in the scriptures. Um, and so in the, in the redemptive kingdom, Christians are nurtured through the ministry of the church, through discipleship and evangelism and the sacraments and preaching. And so they would say, and this is really important, this is a crucial insight if you want to understand two kingdoms people. The only truly redemptive work that we do in the world is the work that happens in this kingdom, in this circle. It's not the work that happens in this circle. It's the work that happens in this circle. So they're called two kingdoms because they say, okay, the world, God has ordered the world as kind of these two parallel side-by-side kingdoms. And Christians have their feet one foot in both kingdoms, okay? And two kingdoms advocates believe that the big problem with how Christianity has engaged culture is that Christians confuse these two kingdoms with one another. They'll say, liberal Christians want to just be relevant to this kingdom, and so they conflate and ruin what makes Christianity distinct. And neo-Calvinist transformationists, who is really their kind of their, their bugaboo, their foil. They try to turn this kingdom into this kingdom, which a two kingdoms person says should not be done at all. You shouldn't worry about transforming the common kingdom into the redemptive kingdom. That's not God's intent. So remember when we looked at the creation mandate in our first chapter, first week, and uh, where God tells Adam and Eve, go tend the garden, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And we said, transformationists typically say, that is evidence for, hey, go out into the world and all that you do work-wise and vocationally, whether you're an artist or a plumber or a pilot, is redemptive. You're tending the garden and you're actually manifesting God's kingdom. They would disagree with that. They would say, your work is not redemptive if you're a homemaker or a pilot or an artist. The only thing that's redemptive is your engagement in the church. Um, So transformationists argue that that mandate is kind of an ongoing mandate for all humans to create culture and develop creation. Two kingdoms people say that Christian cultural endeavors aren't fulfilling this without getting into all the details there. So two kingdoms model, okay? There's two kingdoms. There's the common kingdom that Christians are involved in, and there's the redemptive kingdom that Christians are involved in. But the key point is that their involvement in the common kingdom is not an involvement where they're seeking to change or transform things. They're, they're just living in the common, common kingdom, and the common kingdom exists to restrain evil, right? It exists to make sure that things aren't as bad as they otherwise could be. It doesn't exist to be transformed into the kingdom of God through Christian sort of efforts. That's, that's the work of the redemptive kingdom. That's the work of the church. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the embassies, but let me pause there to see if there's questions 
comments, confusion. Julie. Missions. Yeah. yeah. So where does, does a two-kingdom culture not have missions? They don't go to the common kingdom and see that as a mission field? Oh, they absolutely do that. They go to the common kingdom and see it as a mission field. But they would say missions work is when you go and share the gospel with someone and that person becomes a Christian. So they're all in favor of missions. They're not anti-mission, they're not anti-evangelism. The distinction is they would say, you going, Laura, as a painter. Laura being a painter in and of itself is not kingdom work and it's not redemptive work. Laura is doing kingdom work as a painter when she shares the gospel with someone at her studio, but she's not doing kingdom work by painting as is. Does that make sense? That's different from a transformationist who said, hey, there's a distinct way you should think about your vocation in the world. And the way you think about your vocation is itself evidence of the kingdom. You're acting as a kingdom agent. They want to bifurcate that. Does that make sense? So, so in this example, would Abbott be transformationist by outlawing abortion in the state of Texas? Yeah, so a, a kingdom's yeah, got... Transformation. Yeah, transformationists are like, yes, do it, go for it. And I think right. two kingdoms guys would say, that is a good thing. That restrains okay. evil in the common kingdom. Okay. Right? But they would not say... They would say the main way Christians are like being kingdom citizens, the, the only way really, is by going to church on Sundays and receiving the sacraments and by reading their Bibles and by being discipled. It shouldn't be, you're not doing the work of restraining abortion because you're a Christian, they would say. You're doing it because everybody just kind of knows by nature that it's wrong to kill unborn babies. So you can work with unbelievers and you should fight against abortion, but you shouldn't do it to kind of transform this kingdom into this kingdom. You should do it just because of God's common grace. Make sense? Well, and maybe to put a fine point on it, a two kingdoms person would say, if Greg Abbott says, as a Christian, I read the scriptures to be against the killing of unborn human life, the two kingdoms person would say, you're crossing a line. If you're doing it because you've come to that through reason and logic and human experience, then you've done well. But if you're taking something as a Christian and bringing it into the common kingdom, as a Christian on that basis, then you've crossed a line. That's right. Yeah. Makes sense? Okay. Kind of question. Yeah, it's not super easy. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Because it's Lutheran, is it loosely based off some of the Catholics workspace? If you're saying you have to go to church and you have to do some of the sacraments? Uh, there's probably something to that, okay. like in the historical story. <coughs> But honestly, Luther, it's, a, it's an adaptation of Luther. For Luther, okay. the two kingdoms were the world and the church. And so this is kind of an adaptation of that. Okay. That really in the last 50 or so years has come into problem. So you guys might know this. Meredith Klein, I don't know if you, another name you might not know. Very, very <coughs> important Old Testament scholar. All of this flows from Meredith Klein's teaching. Okay. So if you want to see kind of the roots of it, then talk, go read Klein, which is fine. Um, other questions for clarification's sake. Yeah, Jose. Just really out of curiosity, where will uh, like uh, the, the Jewish people fall according to this? Will they be common kingdom or will they be redemptive They would. They need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ okay. and be a part of the redemptive kingdom. Otherwise, that's true with anyone. 
We're all still a part of the common kingdom, by the way. You don't leave the common kingdom when you become a Christian. But your work and your life in the common kingdom exists to make to make the, the world a pretty a pretty decent place. You know? But but you're not like a kingdom agent by being, you know, in sales. No, I said Jewish people. I know you said oh, Jewish people. But that's true for everyone. It's oh, true for a yeah. Jewish person as well if they oh. become Christians. Yeah. I, mean, so I guess like part of this, part of common grace in my mind and not necessarily theologically accurate is fact that Christians around the world have often restrained people. Yeah. Like, would that be, like, like, that's a transformationalist view, then wouldn't it not? So, that's not common, I mean, common grace is the idea that it's not just Christians that have restrained people in the world. It's everyone as a result of God writing the law on the hearts of all humans as a result of general revelation. It's very, very significant for two kingdoms people to see that yeah, to see that non-Christians don't get everything wrong, they say, because of common grace. And the reason they don't get everything wrong, because they don't get everything wrong, Christians don't need to go into the world and you know fix it all. So for the, for the transformationist, the secular state is a huge problem, a huge problem for the re- religious right, for the neo-Calvinists, big problem. We need to go in there and live as Christians. And it's also a huge problem for the counterculturalists. They say the secular state is basically, you know, Babylon. It's the demons, the powers and principalities. And so their answer is any association with the secular state at all is you're corrupting and corroding your influence. Two kingdoms say, no, the secular state is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's restraining evil. It's making the world not as bad as it would be otherwise. And so Christians should participate in that as common kingdom members, but they don't participate in that as redemptive kingdom members. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very reflective of the Westminster Confession and the power of the sword and those types of things. Yeah, so they love that part. Yeah. But there's more (laughs) to jump the gun. But yeah, the state state has legitimate God-given authority to restrain evil, the power of the sword. And common kingdom people are two thumbs up. Let's do it. That's a good thing. Yeah, Can you David. Say, how do they reconcile that to your point? Like God, there's clear scriptures about right. God has appoints and he he allows rulers and he doesn't allow rulers and mm-hmm. the power of the sword comes from God, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just really struggling with how you have this model in light of the scripture that says that. Not that a lot of the ideas they're trying to get to don't make some sense, but how do they address that aspect? What what is it? What is it? You want me? What that, are you? The aspect that it seems like God has said, like it's one kingdom. Everybody falls under. No, no authority can exist outside of Him. So he's, it, to me, he's, he's set mm-hmm. up a kingdom, not multiple kingdoms. It seems like from Scripture. So how do they address that? Well, they would say the way God rules the world. He rules this entire world. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're under God's rule. The way that rule manifests is in this kingdom, and one of the ways that shows is in the state. The state exists. You know, if you kill someone, you go to prison. The state exists to restrain evil. The state exists to enforce contracts, right, to make sure that people tell the truth. But that's not why the church exists. The church is a particular kingdom. Remember Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares? Mm -hmm. That's an analogy that they'll often use. We're always going to be among the tares. But they say the wheat needs to stay wheat. So let let me go into a little bit more of the emphases, and that might bring some clarification. So two kingdoms people place a really high value. Now, 
They, they place a high value on Christians pursuing their work in, quote, secular vocations, but not in the same way that transformationists do. Again, to use Laura as, as an illustration. It's just, you're the artist, so I always want to... <laughs> For a transformationist, Laura's art, she has, like, a, an objectively different way of being an artist because she's a Christian. Remember when we talked about the transformationists, I talked about, like, um, Sufjan Stevens' music. He's a Christian, and his Christianity objectively, self-consciously informs the way he writes songs. Or Terrence Malick's movies, who's doing you know filmmaking in secular studios, but he's making films objectively and self-consciously as a Christian. A transformation says that's what Christians should be doing. A, a Two Kingdom says, no, just go make movies in the common kingdom. Just be an artist and do your art really well in the common kingdom, but there's no such thing as Christian art, they would say, other than you subjectively want to honor God, you know, through what you do. But there, there's no difference between the way a plumber plums is irrelevant. His Christianity is basically irrelevant to the way he plums. Your, to the way you paint, Christianity is basically irrelevant. Does that make sense? So they care about secular vocation, but they say, hey, you should love your neighbors. You should try to make the world a better place, but you're not like a servant of the kingdom when you're baking a pie. You're only a servant of the kingdom when you're objectively kind of engaging in church work. Make sense? Okay. Um, So the big difference between two kingdoms people and transformationists is in their counsel on how Christians do their work in the world, to the point I was just trying to make. Two kingdom advocates say, hey, all work has dignity, all work is useful, but Christians don't look for uniquely Christian ways of doing ordinary tasks. I remember I read this John Piper article once, which I'm not, I think is in hindsight, it's funny. He's, he, the whole article was about drinking, how drinking orange juice glorifies God. Mm-hmm. Very classic Piper, like <laughs> bordering on ridiculous, but you know, he's like, there's a distinctly Christian way to drink orange juice. And a Two Kingdoms guy's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Just drink your orange juice and thank God that oranges exist in the world and that someone squeezed them for you and put them in a bottle and you go buy them at H-E-B. But your drinking orange juice is no different at all from the way your pagan neighbor drinks orange juice. So just drink orange juice and stop trying to change the world by thinking about how you drink orange juice differently because you're a Christian. Make sense? So they say, hey, your work's valuable, but stop trying to think, oh, this is the way I'm bringing the kingdom. There's no unique approach or idea that Christians alone possess when it comes to how to be in culture. They'd say non-Christians know how to do the same things through common grace. There's no such thing as a distinctly Christian culture for a two kingdoms person. So um, language like healing creation or transforming culture, etc., two kingdoms people like counterculturalists want nothing to do with that language. Um, they say God's ruling power in the common kingdom, it's only there to restrain evil, not to improve things, so to speak, to put it a little bit crassly. So they're a lot like countercultural. I mean, yeah, they're a lot like the counterculturalists in the way they disagree with transformationists. Does that make sense? Both the transformationists, or both the counterculturalists and the two kingdoms people say, transformationists are, their view about engaging culture is off base at the, at the outset. So... That's a, that's a significant thing. 
The last thing, just as far as emphases, is that I've already talked about this a little. The two kingdoms view of the state differs from both of the other models. So I talked about this a second ago. Transformationists see the secular state as a big problem. Let's go engage. Get Bush in the White House, an evangelical Christian in the White House, and that's going to make the world better. Or get someone as a CEO of Apple who's a Christian. Or have someone teaching sociology at Harvard who's a Christian. Or make Greg Abbott an evangelical Christian, we think, by some people's opinion, you know, the governor of Texas. Those are all good things. We want Christians doing these things, especially in positions of power. Transformation, I mean, excuse me, counterculturists are like, when you get in a position of power, you're corrupting your influence. And a two kingdom guy says, if you're in a position of power, whatever, make the world a better place, but don't think you're bringing the kingdom. Okay. Um, so they would say common grace restrains disorder, but it doesn't build new order. So those are some of their emphases. So remember the two big questions we've asked for every one of these options is, should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the possibility of cultural change? So the transformation has said we should be optimistic. It's possible to change the culture. Counterculturalists said pessimistic. When you try to change the culture, you're corrupting yourself. And what do you guys think Two Kingdoms people would say to that question? <laughs> Neutral is actually not a terrible answer. I mean, they're probably pessimistic when it comes to like, if a Christian thinks, if I get into a position of power, I'm going to make a huge influence for the kingdom. They're like, eh, probably not. Just go like be an honest and good social worker or president or whatever. But the goal of the common kingdom is not for you to bring the reign of God over it. It's just to make sure things aren't as bad as they could be. So they're, they're, they're pessimistic as far as their view of like cultural change goes. And then the second big question is, is the current culture redeemable and good or is it fundamentally fallen? Now counterculturalists counter fundamentally fallen so much so that we should go full Amish sometime. Get away from it. Powers and principalities are there. Transformationists say, Oh, it's fallen, which is why we need to go change it. Two kingdoms people say, it is what it is. Yeah. It's fallen, yes. They would not say it's not fallen, but they'd say it, the, the purpose of the common kingdom is to restrain evil, and yeah, that's happening. Does that make sense? So would the two kingdom person be someone who, um, I think I remember, my dad loved Ecclesiastes, where there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Like we have a lot of uh, gay and, and LBGQ stuff, H, Y, Z, now that we think is so big, but way back then it existed. Way back then. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. Is that a more of a two kingdom thought versus the redemptive kingdom and the common kingdom? Yeah, I About think so. About the common kingdom? Yeah, I think so. And I think, again, a two kingdoms person would say, you know, uh, the laws that the state gives should restrain evil and should not promote evil. So they would agree with the transformationists in that. Their disagreement is you are not like manifesting the kingdom of God in wanting those and working for those things if you're a transformation, if you're a two kingdoms person. So yeah, they would agree with that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about a couple of weaknesses, then I'll try and give some time for questions just as we close the whole class up. Here's the biggest weakness. 
the two kingdoms model gives more weight to common grace than the Bible does. In my opinion. <laughs> my probably not so humble opinion. They insist Christians don't need to bring their worldview to bear on public life in order to strengthen it because, you know, the world is its own kingdom and it serves its role by general revelation. No, they're right. There is such a thing as common grace, okay? Everyone is made in God's image. But they don't give equal justice to the idea that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which also, it turns out, is in Romans 1. Paul says everyone has the law of God written on their hearts, and everyone can know God based on general revelation. But the problem is, in our sin and unbelief, we suppress the truth. We refuse to believe what is evident and clear, which is, by the way, Paul's whole point in Romans 1. I think a problem with the two kingdoms view is that they give too much credence to this idea. In other words, they think that they think that uh, they undervalue our propensity to suppress and ignore God's revelation and they overvalue our ability to get things right apart from special revelation. Make sense? Let me read Tim Keller commenting on this. He writes this. Two kingdom advocates have often written as if natural law and common grace are enough to guide human beings without the light of the Bible to build a society that is peaceful and prosperous, one that fits human nature and destiny. But this seems to go beyond what the Bible teaches, namely that human beings usually distort, suppress, and deny the natural revelation of God. So is that clear? I think that's an important an important critique to think that it's just going to, you know, things are going to be all right just because of common grace is to overweight common grace's power and to underweight our propensity to distort and suppress the truth. A second weakness. Um, and someone mentioned this a minute ago. A lot of the social good, like good things in our world, that two kingdoms people say that comes because of general revelation or common grace is actually a result of special revelation. It's a result of Christians working distinctly as Christians in the world. We talked about this a little bit last week. Basically, our entire world, our entire, the whole Western world is the Western world because of Christianity. That is the reason why there's such a thing as human rights. Human rights, which the LGBTQ community and the you know, most crazy woke people you can imagine want desperately to preserve and to you know, affirm, that concept only exists because of Christians changing the world over 1,500 years. The eighth century Visigoths, when they're invading Rome, didn't give a crap about human rights. Right? They didn't care. It was the monks who changed Western Europe and who started basically Christian civilization that created the ideas that we now assume. And so common, two kingdoms people will say, all this stuff in the common kingdom, this, a lot of these things are good. But they're not, it's not good because of common grace. They're, it's good because often Christians have distinctively worked in the world because they're Christians. Does that make sense? That's a big, to me, a significant thing. Nicholas Wolterstorff writes this. The basic ideas of inherent human dignity, the importance of forgiveness rather than vengeance, the importance of philanthropy and charity, all of these grew out of Christian civilization, for they were virtually absent in Western pagan and Eastern civilizations. A couple other weaknesses. I'll go through these quickly because I want to leave some time. Uh, the two kingdoms model implies that neutrality is possible. That is, they want the state to be basically neutral. 
They want the state to be basically secular and just enforce contracts and make good laws and just have the power of the sword. But the state's not neutral, ever. There is, no one's neutral. There is no neutrality. So I think that's a weakness. Real quick, this is a, another one that I think is important. The Two Kingdoms model produces what some people have called social quietism. What, what does that mean? Another way, this is the way 19th century Presbyterians talked about this. It's the spirituality of the church. That is all the church should worry about is people's, and all Christians should worry about is people's spiritual lives, discipleship, evangelism. We shouldn't worry about common kingdom issues. Well, in the 19th century church, guess what we justified repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly? Anybody want to take a guess? In the 1800s, southern church, slavery. Slavery. Not only we say slavery is not bad, and I mean we as southern Presbyterians. Not only is slavery not bad, they actually ended up having biblical justifications for slavery. And it's partly because of this view that the provinces of the church and the state are so distinct that one has no right to usurp the jurisdiction of the other. So does that make sense? Uh, when there's just, all, the only redemptive work is, quote, church work, it's easy to just ignore, conveniently ignore, a lot of the massive social justice problems in our world. And there's a ton of historical evidence for that. I think that's a big weakness. And then the last one is it contributes too great a disjunction between, disjunction between clergy and laity. In other words, frankly, my work's more important than your work. That's what it boils down to, if you're a two kingdoms person. Alan's just a, he's just a grimy lawyer. Can you believe this? But I'm a pastor. I'm doing kingdom work. Alan, he's just out there, you know, trying to make sure it's not as bad as it could be. But it's not kingdom work. So I actually think that's a weakness. I think it creates a sacred-secular dichotomy, and I think it creates a clergy-laity distinction that the, that's too, too broad, too uh, significant, that doesn't reflect what the scriptures teach. So I think those are some significant weaknesses of the two kingdoms. One of the, you know, I think a thing we can think about as a strength is this is, a, this is something that we do tend to undervalue. And I do think, I do have some sympathy for the idea that, like, listen, just drink your orange juice. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to try, try to transform the world by the way you drink orange juice. Just drink orange juice and be thankful to God. But I, my, I guess, overall example is that they take this, they take it too far. They overweight it. So those are the two kingdoms, people. Um, we've got about five or ten minutes. Any questions just as we kind of wrap up our time together? I know, again, the point of the class was I want to expose you to some ideas, for one, which I think is in itself valuable, and give you, give you some ways to think about how we as Christians are supposed to interact with the world in which we're living. And Christians have thought a lot about this over the years, over the centuries, and there's various views and um, so I think that's really important and significant for us to be cl have some clarity on as, as our culture becomes increasingly antithetical to the way we live and the way we believe. So that's kind of the overarching view of the class. And I know I've risked you know, getting lost in the woods, the forest for the trees. But I think it's, I think it's worth it just to give you a, a sense of how different people have thought differently about these ideas. So any kind of thoughts or questions as we kind of wrap things up? The, that your comment about the um, overemphasis of common grace, I think that other side of that 
feels like the other side of that coin is also um, not taking evil seriously and sort of downplaying the power of Satan and that spiritual warfare part of our existence here that, um, I mean, I think it makes me think of screw tape letters where mm-hmm. there's sort of this feeling of like, if I just if I just get them to believe that we don't exist, yeah. we can placate them and they will go on about their lives and we can really do what we want because yeah. they're distracted. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think it's really important to keep in mind that both the counterculturists and the two kingdoms their model is largely derived by what they think are the abuses and problems of the transformationists. So they would say, there's evil in the world, we should go out there and change it. And they're like, wait, 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 slow down. There can be issues there. But I think your point is a good one. I agree with your point. Yeah. Other comments? Joseph? In all all of you, sorry, talking over my... um, How much do you think eschatology is going to be playing in the the view of end times? Paul Mill, Premier Post Mill. What, what, how's that play into the two kingdoms uh, versus the transformation? Like, hey, yeah, I've got some theories. But well, that's that's another four week class probably. But <laughs> I will say, I don't. You're not going to find many post millennial two kingdoms people. Yeah. Right. That is people, at least classic post millennialists, who think that you know there's going to be a quote golden age. The culture is going to get better as a result of the gospel changing society. Two kingdoms people are going to be Amil. So I do think eschatology plays a role in all of the views for sure. It also, by the way, plays a role in transformationists because transformationists love texts like Isaiah 60 where, you know, Isaiah is prophesying and the ships of Tarshish are coming into the kingdom. It's like all the cultural good created in the world is ultimately going to serve to glorify God and be a part of his kingdom. I mean, I, you, I, probably, I have more sympathy with that view than any of the other views. But I do think eschatology is a significant factor for all the views. We haven't even gotten into that, but I agree. Yeah. Any other comments, thoughts, questions? You, you said Mr. Horton there is... Yeah, uh, Mr. Horton. That's what you need to call him. person that thought about all these two kingdoms. I mean, he's one of the kind of... He popularized the, this ideal in a lot of ways. Horton wrote a great book. Huh? Is the last 50 years, is it? Yeah, Horton's really? still alive. He's still teaching and writing and working. Yeah. I thought that when, at the beginning of the class when you were going to explain the whole two kingdom thing, it was probably going to be a little bit more clear. Um, Sorry. And I'm probably going to offend a lot of people, but I just think that, that gentleman there has way too much time in the hand. <laughs> come up with all these things. His uh, job is to... to he's a theologian. They all have too much yeah. time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions or comments? On any any of the stuff we've covered. So would you Laura? say that these views have influenced the church over time in lots of different ways, and that most church in the American church, Christian churches, have varying views, or are there certain denominations that kind of hold to certain ones? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes is the answer. Yes. There are. I mean, even within our denomination, all three of these views exist. Although I think it's fair to say that transformationist is by, is the majority view of some stripe, you know. Um, but all three of these views exist, and there are other these. All these are embedded in the historical story, and a lot of their ideas derive from history. Like, so the counterculturalists um, 
Counterculturalists often are immigrants from Eastern Europe. You know, guys like Miroslav Volf and those who have seen the evil of the state. And that informs their, their view of how the church should engage. Transformationists are often Americans who have had significant cultural power basically throughout all of American history. And uh, Two Kingdoms people are almost always people that have seen or been exposed to the abuses of transformationism, namely the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And like, there's gotta be another way that's not counterculturalist, basically. That's well, what spawns that. And bad Christian art. Yeah, and <laughs> Thomas Kincaid, basically. Yes. Christian music and Thomas Kincaid have created Two Kingdoms. Sorry for you Thomas Kincaid fans. Other questions? You tempted me into that. <laughs> well, I mean, to sort of segue off of, you know, off of that, like to, to Jose's point, like a lot of the two kingdoms, the radical two kingdoms view is watered down transformationalism, like the orange juice example, or like really bad, like Thomas Kincaid level type. Like this is transformation. Thomas Kincaid's like granddaughter in here. Like, okay, good. <laughs> but like this is this is what it means to redeem the culture, and a Christian sees that and thinks this is does not have the depth that I see in the scriptures. 